0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's word today. While Pastor Mike is out on vacation, we'll have some of our other pastors delivering a message. Join us today as Pastor Drew gives a teaching on fellowship. Thank the Lord that we get to come together, that we get to gather with each other under the name of our beautiful Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you will open up your Bibles you haven't already kept them there. Acts chapter 2. Thank you, Sam, for reading verses 42 to 47. What we're going to look at today, as, as I said earlier, we'll be considering different aspects of fellowship and community. As we as, we as a church have, have felt led by God, as we've talked about with pastors and elders, we've really been felt led to start in the fall this new effort of community groups. And so we thought before we we really try to get people to join these, it's it's very important and necessary that we actually talk about what true fellowship is. What makes fellowship fellowship? And the way we're going to do that this morning is by considering two things. First, the elements of fellowship that we see in verses 42 through 47, Acts 2. We'll briefly look at those, I emphasize briefly. And then we'll go to... First John chapter 1 verses 1 through 7 to look at the nature of fellowship. What makes true fellowship true fellowship? And as was already stated um, by, by Brother Mike, thank you so much, that today is Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. And in, in Jewish history, we know that Passover is when the Israelites escaped from Egyptian captivity. And then they crossed the Red Sea and 50 days later, after they had escaped from Egyptian captivity, Moses is called up to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. And he, with his finger, God wrote on the the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. And that's the day of Pentecost, 50 days after they escaped from Egyptian captivity. And so, um, if if y'all don't know this, we celebrate Easter, the same time that Passover happens every year, in the Jewish Jewish holiday. Jesus fulfilled his work on the cross and and his resurrection during Passover weekend. And so Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, after Jesus resurrected, he wandered around, appearing to people for about 40 days, and then ascended up into heaven. And then that 10-day period between his ascension and then the day of Pentecost, we, we get there, and, and believers that had come from all over the place for Passover and had come to understand that Jesus was in fact the Messiah— they, were, they, were, they gathered and they stayed around for another 50 days because Jesus in his ministry made a lot of promises. He said, hey, it's good for me to leave you because when I leave, I will leave my helper with you. He's going to send his counselor, his, his helper, his comforter. He's going he's to lead you in truth and in judgment and righteousness. So it's good for me to go. And so people that had come to understand the truth about who Jesus was were, were in this upper room. They, they were from different parts of the world. They didn't speak the same languages. It's probably pretty confusing. Like wondering what in the world was going on. From the day of Pentecost, the Spirit comes in power and wind and fires. T- tongues of flame fall on the heads of all the believers. And then they start speaking to each other in, in tongues, but they understand one another in their, own, in their own languages. And then people that are watching this that see it happen are saying, oh my goodness, they're drunk. And, you know, I guess it's five o'clock somewhere. I'm just kidding. No. But Paul, Paul is like, not, not Paul, Peter is like, no, 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 they're not drunk. Let's, let me explain to you what's taking place, what's happening. And then Peter delivers this message about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people get saved that day. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, we get a picture of what the first church looked like, what they did. It's beautiful. Let's let's look at it together. We're going to look first about the elements of worship. If you want to put that slide up, Sylvia, it's the elements of worship. What what is included? Can you put that first slide up, please? Thank you. What's included in the elements of worship? Well, we have the apostles' teaching. Look look at this with me again, if you will, in, in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And this is important, it's a crucial point that I want to make before we get into the, into the meat of what we're going to be talking about. The crucial point is that we are all personally responsible for playing the role God has given us for the church to function properly. We are all given a role to play, and we are personally responsible to fulfill that role so that the church can function and operate the way that the church was designed to function and operate. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gives us insight in this, talking about the body of Christ. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. All were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Jesus is the head of the church. We all play a different function role in the body. If, if, if your brain and we, we understand this, if we were to remove the brain out of someone's body, the, the parts of that body would not function. And Jesus being the head of the church, we never have to doubt the condition of the head of the church. He's perfect. But just like if I was to cut my arm off and throw it over there, it it wouldn't do anything. It'd be ineffective. It needs to be integrated into the body for the brain to properly lead and guide and respond to the rest of the body so that it can function together and work together as one organism so that it can do what it was designed to do. So it is with the church. It's a great example of what the church is supposed to do. So we are all personally responsible in fulfilling that role that God has given us to play. Look at at these elements. We just read from verse 42. The first thing is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching, we could kind of call that the New Testament. After all, the whole the whole book of the whole New Testament was written by people who were apostles, people who followed the footsteps of Jesus, people who who literally walked with Jesus, who were ministered to by Jesus, who did ministry alongside Jesus. And you're like, what about Paul? Yeah, Paul would be included in that as well because he had a a, a literal manifestation of physical Jesus coming and appearing to him and commissioning him and giving him tasks to do and and sending him to Damascus and then to the furthest ends of the earth to be an apostle for Jesus Christ. And so when, when when it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching, we can understand that to mean that they devoted themselves to basically the word of God. And this does not discredit the Old Testament, obviously, but if we ever read the Old Testament out of the context of Jesus Christ, then we're missing the mark. All of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, points to Jesus. The narrative, the redemptive story that's being told throughout the whole Bible is Jesus coming, living, dying, resurrecting, ascending into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and then he's coming again to return for his bride. That's the whole narrative of Scripture. And so to they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The second thing is that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And if you notice, the, the seventh thing, they, they say it again, the, break, the breaking of bread. We'll talk about it here in a little bit, but we just did that right now. We, we took communion. When we take communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as often as we do it, there's churches that do it once a month like us. There's churches that do it every week. There's churches that do it every quarter. There's no guideline as to how often. Jesus just says, as often as you decide to do it, It must be done in remembrance of Him. And it must be taken in a worthy manner, having repentive hearts that are cleansed before the Lord, so that when we do it together, it it proclaims the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it gives us this longing, anticipation, and hope for His second coming. The third thing is prayer. Um, Mike Baker, in our last service, before he read from God's Word, said that today's Pentecost, and we're reminded of the gifts that God gives us. And one of those gifts... This is an incredible benefit that we have as Christians, is that we get to go before the almighty, perfect creator of the universe. We get to be in his presence and talk to him and hear from him. And they devoted themselves to that. James chapter five talks about how when we share and confess our sins to each other, we can pray for each other for healing because the prayer of a righteous man or woman is powerful and effective. And so prayer is another thing that's part of true Christian fellowship. The fourth thing is being together. This is obvious. Obviously, than being together. Um, if we learned one thing from COVID, it's that it's not good to not be together. I guess I could have said it's good to be together. Double negatives are confusing. If we learn one thing from COVID, is that it's good to be together. Because we learned how bad it was to not be together. And I love that everyone that is here is here right now. I love that. And if you're joining us online, I love love that you're taking time to join us online. But let me make a very clear point. You just being here does not constitute the New Testament charge of what it means to be together. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this. He says, let us not neglect meeting with each other as some are in the habit of doing. I'm sure there's a lot of us in here right now that though we're here right now, we've neglected the concept of what it means to meet together. And that's that's not a new thing. Well, COVID was well, this was happening in the first century. This is happening through the whole history of the church since it was first instituted at Pentecost. That there's believers who are neglecting to meet with each other and they're falling into that habit. But then he says, but... But continue to meet meet with each other is the, is the insinuation, is don't stop or don't neglect to meet, but continually meet with each other and stir up each other towards love and good deeds. That word stir up in Greek literally means to stand alongside something sharp. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And so when we are exposed with each other in true in true fellowship in, 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 in community, we're gonna sharpen each other. Stand alongside each other that, that's, that sharpening is going to make us pursue love and it's, going to, and it's going to make us pursue God with a pure heart more consistently. The next thing is we share our resources. And just as a, a reminder today, since we, we did the, the Lord's Supper, we'll, we will, at the end of service, we'll have the deacons standing at the doors to collect the benevolent offering, the compassion offering. Every, every time we we do that at Lord's Supper, that 100% of the money that we get from the compassion offering goes to support the needs of people in our church and in our community that are struggling. And so, um, but that's not the only way that we share, guys. Time is a resource. The gifts and abilities that God gives you are a resource. Things that you're passionate about, you, you should think of that as a resource to minister to your brothers and sisters in Christ and to a world that's dying. So we share Actually, the word koinonia in Greek is the word for fellowship that's used here. And and that word literally means to share or to have things in common. And what what do we share in common? Amen. Jesus. That's who we share in common. It's funny because when I look around the room right now and I see there's really no other dynamic where such a wide variety of people will come together. Maybe sporting events. But even then. Now you're, A lot of you in here are like, well, I don't really like sports. Well, I know in here we have people who love sports and people who couldn't care possibly any less about sports. But yet, here we are gathered together in one room. And whether you believe in Jesus or not, let me just confrontationally tell you, you're here because of Jesus. Because there was, there was a church in the first century that was paying attention, even though they couldn't understand each other. They didn't even have culture or language in common. But the Holy Spirit united them under the person of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God. And that's what they share in common. What we share in common is Jesus. We share in common one mission, to make disciples of all nations. We share in common one God that we worship in spirit and in truth. We, we, we share in common communion. We, we, we proclaim together the Lord's death until he comes again. We, sh- we have the same hope and expectation together that Jesus is coming again, that this eternal weight of glory is what's in store for us in heaven. We share and have these things in common. We- we're together. The sixth thing is worship. That they-, they would worship together in God's temple. The way that the church functioned in the first century, they didn't have these big, beautiful sanctuaries like we have in obviously, there's millions of sanctuaries all over the world. Many of them are not actually having true worship. But but in in the first century, they didn't have this. They would would meet in homes, and then they would go to the temple to worship, to praise together. But they would do this together. That's what we're doing right now in a a worship service. We're, we're, We're celebrating God together. We're celebrating God together. But just to think about number seven, breaking of bread, He talks about communion and then he says, breaking bread a second time, probably referring to sharing a meal with each other. And if y'all notice, right now, how how are we seated? In lines, we're in rows right now. So everyone can see my face or the back of someone's head. And if you're in the front row, or if you're on the sides, I guess you can see the sides of people's heads and faces, which is maybe a little bit better, but still not. But if, if you're in the front row, you just see my face sharing a meal, sharing, having things in common, what, what we're excited about in doing community groups is that it's way better being around a table in a circle than it is being in lines. Because then pretense leaves, barriers and walls come down. We're forced to be a little bit more intimate with each other. We're forced to be a little bit more open and honest. It calls a certain level of accountability. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm around the table and all of us are here together. There's not one person lording over someone else up on a podium. It's, we're all here to break bread with each other and to share in life with each other. So sharing, breaking bread. The, the eighth thing is hugely important. Look at verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all people. Florida added to their number day by day those who were being saved. They were united. They all had favor with each other. I would argue that one of the most detrimental things to the ministry of the church is when Christians, when followers of Jesus Christ, quarrel with each other. We get so caught up. I mean, just study the church history, guys, from the Reformation. Praise God for the Reformation, but there is a lot of dissension that happened amongst Protestant believers over the centuries that's really just kind of made a world watch and go, why, are we, why do we want to align ourselves with such a broken and disorganized and ununified congregation of people. So it's important for us to know what we align ourselves with, to all be on the same page, to put differences aside as we pursue Jesus Christ together from a pure heart, together with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart, 2 Timothy 2.22. Look, a lot of these things happen, okay, in, in churches all over. I worked in a church where this happened, we would do, you know, we would, we would open the Bible and someone would teach from it and we would have communion. We did it once a month, that church. We would, there would be prayer. Obviously, people were together in a room. Um, we would sing songs and worship and we would have meals with each other. There wasn't much unity, but, I'll, see, a lot of these things can happen, but it's not just simply these elements that make fellowship, fellowship. True fellowship isn't simply something that looks a certain way. It starts with believers taking personal responsibility before the Lord. And then that impacts outwardly the community. We'll talk about that as we move on. We're going to talk about the, the things that make true fellowship true, true fellowship. So if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to 1 John. This is where we'll finish. Our time is in 1 John chapter 1. Before we talk about the nature of of true fellowship, I want to consider a little bit of the context of John. First John. So there's there's a little bit of debate as to whether it's the same Apostle John who wrote John, first who wrote John who wrote 1 John. Um, but just looking at at, at the two at the Gospel of John and the, the first, the second, and third letters that that are attributed to John, he uses a lot of the same language, He uses a lot of the same examples. He speaks. He uses uh, what some people refer to as simple Greek, so it's very cut and clear and dry and black and white. And so readers that, that would have the letter and, and open it up and read it for themselves, they wouldn't really be that confused as to what Paul is saying, or sorry, John was saying, very straightforward. In fact, if you look at verses one and two in First John, John writes that, which was from the beginning, which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Everyone say manifest. Manifest. Okay, I'm going to do that a couple more times and come on, be better than that, okay? It's a good way of waking people up. Okay, I'm going to ask you to repeat some stuff. The word was made manifest to us. And when you look at John chapter 1, I'll read this for you from John chapter one. John writes, this is in the gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was not made. And then in verse 14, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I'm in the, in the first century, there was, there was this heresy that had been circulating. Was, there's was a lot of different heresies, but one in particular had started to gain a lot of traction and was circulating and kind of infiltrating the church in a big way. And there's debate as to who John originally first wrote the letters, his letters to, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. Um, but it's likely that he probably wrote them to churches in the Turkey, Asia, minor area, which is where, like, Ephesus was. And there, this heresy that was going around was called Gnosticism. And you know the word, you know maybe some of you have met people that are that call themselves agnostics. And agnostics, a it's against knowledge, meaning I don't know. It's basically what they say is I believe that there could be a god, but I just I don't know. Gnosticism is concerning knowledge, And, and literally what they believed is that salvation had to deal with having a special knowledge. And this special knowledge taught this, and this is heretical. This is a bad teaching. It taught that everything that is matter, everything physical, is evil. And then everything that is spiritual, everything that's immaterial, is good. So, since evil is matter and, and good is immaterial and spiritual, Jesus could not have been material, Jesus could not have been physical because that would make him evil, because all material things are evil. Basically, it was their way of trying to justify how a a someone, a a man, could be fully man and fully God at the same time. It It was their way of fitting God into their box so that they could conceptualize it in a way that made sense to them. But in the process, blaspheming God, blaspheming Jesus Christ himself, and so, and so if we read this again, think, think of this in mind, that Gnosticism was spreading and, and, they, were, and they were saying, like, Jesus wasn't, like, a, a physical person. Or, or maybe he was when he died and so this, he, his divinity left at the moment that he died so that he could die. Just all this ridiculous ways that they would try to explain the gospel other than just saying, like, no, holy, perfect God, who's also fully man, died because only God could accomplish what needed to be accomplished. Because we can't. And only God can overcome death—not just a man, but God, fully God, fully man. And now think of that in mind about what Paul, sorry, what John is saying. He says, "No, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life." It's almost like. John could have been like, Thomas, what do you have to say? He's like, Thomas like, yeah, seriously, I literally put my hand on his wrist, and I put my hand in the hole in his side where he was stuck with a spear. He is real. He's a physical person. His, his resurrection wasn't just spiritual. It, it was literally a physical resurrection. Bodily, he came back to life. He died physically, but he overcame death and came back to life physically. That is hugely important, John is saying, like, no, we have, we've seen him. We've heard him. We've touched him. We've experienced him. And now he has become manifest. Everyone say manifest. It's a little better. We'll get there. In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, the, the word manifest, or it really means appeared. It's another way that it's translated. And it's the same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 9 when Jesus is being talked about. And let's, listen to this. This is awesome. Verse 25 and 26, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Saying Jesus' sacrifice was not like what the high priest would go and do over and over and over again. If that was necessary, Jesus would have to continually and repeatedly offer himself upon the cross. Look at what verse 26 says. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has appeared. That's why his incarnation is so important. That's why him him becoming flesh is so important. It, it, talking about John chapter one and verse 14, he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Greek, that word literally means tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. Obviously, that depicts a lot of beautiful imagery from the Old Testament. When, when, when Moses first led Israelites out of captivity in Egypt and went up to Mount Sinai, God gave him instructions on how to build the first temple of worship. And that place was the tabernacle. And this tabernacle was a tent that would be carried around by the Levites. And every time that they would settle in a new place, they would plant that tent there they would plant the tabernacle and set it all up and then the, the glory of God, the presence of God would fill the tabernacle. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus tabernacled, he physically manifested as a man and came and lived amongst us. And so Hebrews, Hebrews chapter four talks about that because he did that, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tested, who's been tempted, who's been trialed in every way that we were. Yet he didn't sin. Therefore, we can boldly, with confidence, approach God's throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. He accomplished that for us. He tabernacled amongst us. Christianity sets itself apart from every other feeble attempt of religion because it's not about man's attempt reaching God, but it's all about God's successful endeavor in coming and reaching us. And then Jesus said, come, come. To me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come as you are and I will give you rest for your souls. We find rest in Jesus Christ. Look, these distortions from the truth that were in Turkey, Asia minor, that were infiltrating the church, these were preventing true fellowship to happen amongst believers because fellowship with God was being distorted because they weren't thinking of God the proper way. So now let's think about So we finish our time, what true fellowship is? What makes the fellowship true fellowship? If you want to put that next slide up. What makes true fellowship true fellowship? There's five things. True fellowship is vertical and then horizontal. True fellowship is hospitable. True fellowship is joyful. It's complete. True fellowship is revealing and true fellowship is open. We'll talk about those things briefly. Kind of focus a little bit on each one of these. In verse three, if you read with me in John, First John chapter one, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We must believe in Christ to have restored fellowship with God. First John chapter five, verse eleven and twelve. Later on, in his in this letter, we talked about this that that his language was simple Greek. It was very cut. Clear, dry, not hard to understand. He says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. So if you're sitting in here and you're, I don't know if, I don't know what Drew's talking about. True fellowship, true community, true sharing. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, You will never be able to experience true fellowship. You can maybe see other people doing it, but that is the bottom line. That's that's the foundation. Jesus Christ, our rock, our cornerstone, it's on him that the church is built, and it's on him that our lives are built. He is our firm and solid foundation. He's, He's the rocky foundation, not the sand. Don't build on things that aren't Jesus Christ. And so if you have a relationship with Jesus, then you can start to experience true fellowship. And so we see in this verse that that because our fellowship is with the Father, restored fellowship with the Father because of the Son, then we can have true fellowship with each other. When we do these community groups, we made a very concerted effort to say, you know what, these are gonna be open groups, meaning that we want you to invite people that don't know Jesus so that when they come, God willing, (laughs) that we're not dissented and, God willing, they'd see what true Christian fellowship looks like, and they would want to be a part of that. But it's vertical first, our relationship with God, and then that moves horizontally with our relationship with people. The second thing, hospitable. True fellowship is is hospitable. If you look at verse 3, the first part of it, John writes, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. True fellowship is, is welcoming, it's hospitable. The word hospitality that's used in the New Testament literally means to welcome the stranger. It's this idea of, that we've been commissioned to as the church to always be looking, to always be seeing. Pastor Mike has done a great job of this and has taught people on his staff, people, that, people at this church to do this. He's, he has eyes that always look out to see, okay, who's new or who's kind of on the fringe or I'm, I, I think I should go and talk to this person right now. It seems the Spirit's leading me to go minister to them or just talk to them, even if it's a short, simple conversation. And that's, that's, just not, that's not just the role of pastors and leaders. That's, that, that's what all of our roles should be. When we come together to worship, people will make a determination as guests within the first 10 minutes, whether or not they want to come back here or not. That's before we've even finished the second song, guys. So, so if you're a guest today and you haven't been welcomed well, I am sorry. And if you're a member and you didn't think about welcoming people well, step it up. <laughs> we've been called to be warm and welcoming and embracing towards each other. Jesus accepts us just as we are. He embraces us. And then he cleanses us and restores us. No it pretense. It's beautiful. I loved how Gus said it last night when he preached in this passage. He says that we all need a hug. We all need to be embraced. We're in need of that. You're like, well, I, still, I don't know if you've been vaccinated yet. Well, just go say hi to them, okay? Not, not literally. My goodness, okay. Embrace people. Be warm and inviting. We have the greatest news on earth to share. And people receive it better when we're welcome and warm towards people. Amen? Third thing is fellowship is joyful. Look at, look, at verse, look at verse four. And we are writing these things so that your joy, our joy, he does not say your joy, he says that our joy together, our joy may be complete. And in Psalm 23, you all have a coffee mug with Psalm 23 on it probably, with like a little sheep in a pasture. The Lord is my shepherd. Think about, okay, this, is not, this does not look good on us. If, some of you might know who Marie McDonald is. She used to be a shepherdess in France, and I remember, this was years ago, she was sharing with me the whole idea of shepherding sheep, and she just said, "Yeah, Drew, sheep are really dumb. They're really dumb. You can, you know, you lead them in the pasture, and they graze and stuff, but if they're even faced in the wrong direction, if there's like a stream or a pond over here, and, and you kind of lose, lose track of some of the sheep, they will just walk in that direction until they die. Basically, and so, and so it's necessary for the shepherd to go out there with the shepherd's staff, the crook of the staff to kind of redirect the sheep. To, and they're like, oh, man, water over there. That's, that's where the water is. <laughs> we're sheep. I'd rather be a sheep than a goat, for sure, but we're sheep. <laughs> and, and we need God. He, he is our shepherd. And this is what it says. The Lord is my shepherd. I am shall not want. Matthew chapter 6, that when we, do, to seek, when we seek first his kingdom and righteousness, he gives us everything that we need. Think about it. If God cares about making flowers look pretty and about providing for birds, does he not so much more care for the people that he made in his image? That's why we seek the Lord. And when we seek the Lord, he will give us everything that we need. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, and he will do this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lead not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will just like a shepherd leads sheep. That's what we are. Just sheep. We're just dumb sheep. And when we're in the Lord, he completes us. You know that Jerry Maguire movie? You complete that's a lie. God completes us, okay? Jesus completes us. And when we have that, we have that restored fellowship with God personally. Gus said this last night. This is what we do so much, church, when we don't spend time with the Lord every day. We We love to be sustained on yesterday's bread and water. That makes no sense. He is the living water and he is our daily bread. You can't live off yesterday's bread and yesterday's water. You need it every single day. When we do that with the Lord moves outward. The, the fourth thing is revealing. True fellowship is revealing. Look at verse 5 and 6. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We lie. We do not practice the truth. If we think of Kind of been doing this. We think of John chapter one. He says in verse four, "In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it." We need to be willing to ask God to shed light on every single corner of our lives. It's easy to walk in darkness. This last this last year, twenty twenty, Veto and I, um, we, needed, we like everyone else, needed a project, and so. I watched a YouTube video and I became an expert on renovating bathrooms. One YouTube I'm joking, okay. So I got a sledgehammer and I knocked all the walls off of my bathroom and there was a bunch of rot all over the studs in there. So we had to replace a lot of the walls, all the studs in there. Now what I could have done is just built back over it and put like the new drywall on with the, the backer board with the new pretty tile that we bought and everything. But there would have been a problem underneath. And in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs. They're outwardly beautiful, but within they're full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Guys, when the Lord shines light into our life, and when, we put our, when, we, when, we, when we say, you know what, I'm going to step out of darkness and into the light, No matter what may come, the Lord will shine. He'll illuminate some areas. It'll be painful. But when we do this together as a community, James 5 says that we will find healing and accountability. And we'll be able to be the people that God's called us to be. The last thing is that that true fellowship is open. It's genuine. Coming clean. It's genuine. Verse 7 says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of His Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin, from all sin. Um, Kind of continuing the whole bathroom renovation thing, we put up the little screens over the window, over the doors, and stuff. But you know, when we when we opened up those walls, it didn't matter that we had the little we had like a half inch of dust on every single surface in our entire home for like six months. And right, being open, being genuine, it's messy. It's not pretty. People are messy. But that's, that's where we're sanctified. That, that's, that's where we really become the community, the, the, the gathering of people that he's called us to be, the church. In Greek, ekklesia, the, 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 the communion of people being together, where we can properly portray to a world that is going to hell in a handbasket the truth of the gospel. It's way more effective is, you, read, you read this in the Gospels, it was way more effective when Jesus was ministering to sinners than to the Pharisees. Because for the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the adulterers, it was just all out there. This is, this is what I am. This is what I've done. And Jesus was able to minister because there was no pretense. There was no, there was no hiding. Everything was just exposed and out in the open. And so as we consider being the people of God together, as we consider this together, this is a a huge initiative that we've all been called to together as his church. We must, it's paramountly important, we must remember that without first being in proper community and proper fellowship with God, we'll never have the kind of fellowship that he's called us to have together as his people, as his church. So I charge all of us today, me included, to be children who would walk in the light. That we would be open. We would allow the Lord to reveal things. That we would be joyful as we spend time with the Lord and joyful with each other in fellowship and community. That we would be welcoming and warm. And then we would know that as, as we build our communion with God, that will build into our communion with each other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, which is holy, it's perfect, it's true. Thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. And that, Lord, because of your Son's work on the cross, his resurrection, it's now achievable for us to have the kind of fellowship that would cause a world that's dying to see us and to believe that we really are your disciples. Help us to take this seriously, Lord, for your glory. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen, church.